Welcome to the Unpacked Podcast, a podcast devoted to unpacking faith, life, and leadership. The goal, to simplify big ideas for greater impact in everyday people like you and me. Well, welcome to episode number 22 of our podcast. My name is Skylar Elmer. I'm your host, and I hope that this conversation gives you the encouragement you need to make a greater impact in your life. Today is our first international episode. I had the opportunity to talk with author, speaker, and scholar Andy Bannister about Islam and Christianity. And for those of you who don't know Andy, and hopefully by the end of this conversation, you will understand why I've asked him uh, to come onto our podcast to talk with us. But Andy, he is a leading Christian scholar on Islam and specifically speaking, the Quran. Andy has spent a significant amount of time helping people from all backgrounds to better understand Jesus, including atheists and Muslims. Uh, Andy is the adjunct speaker with the Ravi Zacharias International Ministry. He's also the director of a ministry called Solos, which seeks to persuasively communicate the transforming truth of who Jesus is and empower Christians to do the same. Besides being a well-respected scholar, Andy is also very down-to-earth, lighthearted, and, and very funny. I mean, I mean, he's also a very helpful and refreshing voice for Christians who want to learn how to better communicate Jesus to our world. So here is my interview with Andy. Well, it is a an exciting honor to have our first international um, interview podcast. I have Andy Bannister, author of The Atheist Who Didn't Exist, on our podcast. Andy, welcome. It's uh, Skylar, it's great to be with you, joining you all the way from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean and uh, just making sure you folks are behaving yourself over there. <laughs> There's Everything is calm, uh, calm as a cucumber here. I can so. see that. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You know, yeah. I, I find American politics and culture so boring. Nothing ever happens. It's like yeah. over here, right? That's too funny. Well, Andy, um, can you um, uh, can you share a little bit about yourself? You know, your story and um, and even where your academic focus um, was and has been of uh, of late. Yeah. No, happy to, uh, Scarlett. So there's my kind of story in the academic piece, kind of interweave so the potted history is i was born in a christian uh, home uh, raised uh, in another kind of baptist home in london you don't need to be a baptist to go to heaven but why take chances that's my motto <laughs> and uh, hadn't really thought much about publicly talking about my faith or defending it or those who thought differently uh, until in my uh, early 20s i began uh, going up to a place in london uh, called Speaker's Corner, which is part of one of our big parks in London, where on a Sunday afternoon you can kind of stand on a ladder or a soapbox and talk about anything. And uh, thousands of people come to hear the speakers uh, on, a, in, on a summer's day. We get those every so often in the UK, summer's days. And um, a friend of mine was using it as a platform to reach Muslims. Now, I had never preached on the street before. I'd never talked to Muslims before, but he persuaded me to come and give street preaching a go. And so I went to Speaker's Corner, got on a ladder, tried to talk to the Muslims there about why I believed what I believed. And it turned out they were pretty darn good at heckling Christians. And so they kind of tore my faith to pieces. And I remember going home on the train thinking, well, maybe I need to become a Muslim because they seem to have all the answers and I have absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. um, before I made any stupid decisions, I thought I ought to sort of do a bit of investigation. So I went the next day to the local Christian bookstore and told them my story. And they said, ah, oh, what you want is apologetics. And that was a word I never heard before. To me, it sounded like a breakfast cereal, you know, something sort of hearty and healthy to have first thing in the morning. But they explained that, no, it's the branch of Christian theology concerned with, you know, answering uh, objections to the faith. And so I began reading 
and I read and read and read and got answers actually to every question my Muslim new Muslim friends had asked me went back to speakers corner two weeks later with answers to every question uh, and they had new questions so they made me look stupid all over again but over the next three months we did this little game that I would go to speakers corner on the weekend be humiliated in public would go home and read and read and read and through that process God did a few things he gave me a love of Muslims uh, a love of sharing my faith with them and in fact defending my faith publicly and a love of evangelism and and apologetics and all that stuff and to cut a long story short that eventually led to seminary i hadn't been to university at this point i was not university going university going family but i went got a degree in theology but then just sort of kept studying really and thought well it's muslims i'm really particularly interested in so i went from a uh, degree in theology and philosophy then into a phd in islamic studies and so i'm unusual as a christian in that my academic specialty is the quran and uh, you know i've enjoyed that era of study over the years been a great bridge builder to Muslims and obviously you know something I can also use to kind of shake uh, their faith a little bit and so that's been my academic interest because you asked about that but also I'm a generalist so I love uh, engaging uh, atheism love thinking uh, kind of philosophically so yeah you mentioned in the intro my kind of last popular book was this one the atheist didn't exist and uh, I've just finished writing a, a new book for IVP uh, called the Muslims and Christians worship the same God. So that's going back into Islam again, and that comes out in the in the spring. All being well, so that's awesome. kind of where I've come from and where I am now. So now, um, and you have let's see, so you would you would preach, um, I street preach, street preach, get humiliated, and then you'd go home and you do your own study, and then you'd come back. Do you right. do you still um, do you still engage in that kind of a format? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a feeling that street preaching and, and speaker's corner is a bit of a young man's game and I'm now in my late 40s. Um, but what I certainly did there, Skylar, I did a number of things. Firstly, I think I learned to think on my feet. You know, I think uh, if you can stand up at speaker's corner or street preach, you have to be fast. I am fast now. I wasn't then. And so I learned that really taught me uh, how to think fast. And that's been a very useful training ground because in a sense, I don't think I'm likely to encounter anything as sort of intimidating as that. And so now... Uh, I do a couple of things. I'm an adjunct speaker for an organization some of your listeners may have heard of, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, RZIM, or RZIM to you Americans. So I was their um, Canadian director for six years, lived in Toronto, and now I head up an organization very similar to them, uh, based in Scotland in the UK, called SOLAS. And uh, what we tend to do there is we use a lot more, I suppose what I'd say a bit more sort of dialogue than debate. So we do a lot of dialogues with people who think differently. And then we do a lot of events where we go into places like coffee shops, cafes, restaurants, curry houses, workplaces. And we go basically into, into the, the space of our non-Christian friends rather than wait for them to come to us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we do a lot of Q&A as well as sort of uh, addressing tough questions. So that Speaker's Corner stuff was great training. It was a really good kind of uh, sort of battleground to learn uh, how to do this stuff. But I thought, but it's, a, it's probably too a bit too combative for my liking. I'd far rather sit down with somebody, have a discussion uh, and stuff, but still have the rigor uh, there. But yeah, so the Speaker's Corner, I absolutely loved it. It was huge fun. That's awesome. Well, Andy, I haven't I haven't met anybody who has had that experience, nor have I met anybody who has gotten their PhD in um, uh, Islamic studies. And so I want to, I kind of want to focus in on that. Um, sure. And I, I want to know kind of the essence of Islam, but I want to know first and foremost, like what was your focus when you were working on your dissertation? 
Like, so the focus when I was working my dissertation, and uh, in fact, there it is. Look at that. That's called being prepared. So it eventually got published as an oral formulaic study wow. of the Quran. So anyone watching this, don't don't go and buy this. It's a ridiculous <laughs> price. You need to find it in a library is uh, what you need to do. But um, yeah, what I, I got very interested uh, Skyler, when I first was studying the Quran, that something like 25% of the Quran consists of retellings of material that's found in the Bible or in Jewish and, uh, and Christian tradition. Um, so all kinds of biblical figures turn up in the pages of the Quran. Jesus turns up, for example, there's about 90 verses about him. Uh, you know, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ishmael, uh, the list of David, the list goes on and on and on. And so about 25% of the Quran consists of retelling biblical material. Um, but I was always intrigued how it got there. For a long time, more critical scholars, I think, would suggest that, you know, Muhammad, uh, when he was uh, preaching what became the Quran, literally copied from the Bible. But the problem is when you line the Bible up with the Quran, they are not the same. The text is not the same. Mm. And copying usually produces very obvious signs of that. A good example of that would be in the New Testament. You know, we know, how do we know that Matthew and Luke used Mark? Because you can line passages from Matthew and Luke up next to Mark, and it's almost word for word the same. You can see they've they've used Mark as a source. In fact, of course, Luke tells us, you know, he went out and looked at other sources and other writers when he was researching his history of Jesus. Um, the Quran doesn't do that. It's not the same. And so what's going on? And my PhD um, really began to press into that area. And I got fascinated by the fact that we know that uh, the Arabia in which Muhammad was operating was a largely an oral culture. You know, writing had not really taken, uh, taken shape uh, yet. There were a few people who could write, but not a lot of writing going on. And so I went and looked at, you know, what happens when in other cultures, when great works of literature have been produced. The classic example would be Homer's poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey from ancient Greece. Well, they come from a time before writing. So how did Homer do it? Well, it turns out there are tools and techniques you can use as an, as an oral storyteller, an oral performer to construct quite long works of literature, actually live in front of an audience um, and actually sort of compose extemporaneously. And those methods use their, leave their marks on the pages of the text. And a good example in a nutshell, uh, to give you the kind of sort of simple version of this, is that um, oral performers in hundreds of cultures that have been studied use these kind of short repeated phrases that turn up time and time and time again. And then as formulae, because if you are an oral storyteller standing in front of an audience and you've got to compose at performance speed, you can't stop and think about every word. So you have these great long chunks that you can insert again and again and again. And now one of the things we do as scholars is we take a text, we can analyze it, we see what percentage of it consists of these short, repeated building blocks. We use time and time again, like little Lego bricks to build something bigger. And Homer's poems, which we are pretty much taken as a given in academia to be written that way, composed that way, there are about 25% of them consist of these short little building blocks. The Quran, when you do the analysis on the Quran, which is basically what my PhD was doing, using building some computer software to do this, it comes in at about sort of 40 to 50%, depending which passage you look at, um, massively oral formulaic. And so what that shows is the Quran has all the kind of human fingerprints you would expect if it came from an oral environment like Arabia. And so that's what my PhD set out to prove, to really show how the Quran was put together at the lowest, lowest uh, kind of level. And it's fascinating area of research. And if you know anything about Islam, it's devastating for Islam because Islam claims the Quran came directly from heaven with no human involvement. Oh. And it's got human fingerprints all over it. So, okay, let's, uh, I guess, when we think about Islam, um, like 
what is the essence? Like, I know as, as, as believers in Jesus, you know, we would, we would say, here's what I think of Islam. But if you were to talk to, um, you know, a Muslim, what would they say the essence of Islam is, the essence of their faith is? Certainly for, uh, for most Muslims, if you ask that question, they boil it right, right, right down. They would say the essence of Islam is, uh, is, the, is the oneness of Allah. They believe that God, there is one God uh, who is indivisibly kind of one. So they have a problem with Christians and the Trinity. And, and they believe that Muhammad uh, was the messenger of that prophet, uh, of, that, of that God. And so, you know, as a human being, your job is to worship and obey. And in fact, that's really encapsulated in... Um, if you look at the five so-called five pillars of Islam, the five things you need to do, not so much believe, but to do to be an Orthodox Muslim. The first of those known as the Shahada is the way you become a Muslim. And so to become a Muslim, you proclaim in front of an adult male Muslim witness that you believe there is one God and Muhammad was his prophet. And if you say that, you believe that and you do that in front of a witness, you have at that point become a Muslim. So that's the essence of Islam. So in one sense, it's very, 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 very simple. Um, but of course, like so many things, that opens up into a, quite a great degree of complexity. Okay. Now, um, we, you know, I, I'm in the States, and you're in the, the other side of the Atlantic. Um, and I imagine that when I, when I talk to people here, um, Christians have all kinds of ideas about Islam, Muslims, and, um, and I, I imagine it's probably the same way um, in, in Britain. Um, but I guess, you know, what have you seen as you've, because you, you've lectured, you've talked, you've gone to the coffee shops, and you have dialogue with all kinds of people um, on uh, Islam, on Christianity. What are, I guess, some of the uh, common misconceptions that you see that Christians have about uh, Islam? Mm. Well, that's a, um, that's a great question, uh, Skylar. It's funny you use the word misconceptions because I remember about a... A year and a half ago something like that uh, actually doing an event for the islamic society at uh, edinburgh university so edinburgh is the capital of, uh, of scotland uh, one of the things that differentiates english people uh, british people and americans is we can say edinburgh not edinburgh and uh, i actually had an invite from the islamic society there to come and address them which was an amazing opportunity and we eventually landed on this topic mutual misconceptions between mm. christianity and islam uh, and what between Christians and Muslims. And so I began by talking about three misconceptions that Christians have of Muslims. And then I flipped it around and said three that Muslims have of Christians. So let's start with the first, the first three. What are some of the misconceptions that, uh, that Christians have of Muslims? Um, the first one I, uh, I talked about was the fact that uh, many Christians think that all uh, Muslims are violent extremists. You know, that is a worryingly widespread belief. I can kind of understand it because when when you turn on the media, it tends to be, you know, Islam makes the top of the headlines when a Muslim has done something violent. And so when you keep seeing that drip feed, drip feed, drip feed, you can understand why, you know, some Christians go, gosh, you know, Islam, there must be something inherent about all Muslims. Um, and the other issue that can feed it, if you then dig a bit deeply into the origins of Islam, then of course we do have the fact that Muhammad was a was a was a warrior as well as a, as well as a prophet, and so this feeds that as well. And so there's that misconception. I often have to say to Christians to go, yeah, you know, there is certainly a small minority uh, of Muslims, and it's still a small minority when you're talking about you know over a billion people is quite a large number of people. But the fact of the matter is, in the West, you know, your lovely Pakistani next door neighbour is probably very unlikely to be building a nuclear bomb in his garden shed. Uh, he's far more likely. 
to be concerned about raising his family, raising his kids. Right now, he's struggling with all the same issues of COVID that the rest of us are. And to go, what we need to be doing as Christians is finding those common connections. Uh, we don't need to believe the same thing to have connectivity. And, uh, and so, yeah, so don't write all Muslims off as extremists. In fact, many Muslims in the West are very worried about the issue of Islamic extremism, not, 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 not just because, not simply because, um, it's often Muslims who are the victims. You know, look across the Muslim world, many, many Muslims have been killed by, uh, you know, the likes of ISIS and mm. so on. So that's the first misconception. Second misconception, I talked about that evening, is I think many Muslim, many Christians misunderstand the role of Muhammad uh, in Islam. And we can misunderstand him in two ways. We either uh, overestimate him, and so Christians sometimes assume that Muslims worship Muhammad, and that's a gratuitously offensive suggestion to make to a Muslim, they worship Muhammad. Um, they believe he was a prophet. They believe he was, a, he was, they would use the language of a warner, come to warn people about hellfire and so forth. But they believe he was just a man. Uh, and so because Christians sometimes misunderstand that and sort of end up equating Muhammad and Jesus um, in the two different faith traditions. And they're, they're not the same. But then the other way you can go is you can underestimate uh, Muhammad and underestimate the love that Muslims have him. They're very proud of their prophet. They love their prophet. And so that's why... When, Muslim, when Muslims perceive or, uh, or see Muhammad being uh, insulted, um, that can cause, you know, greater, so great pushback. And sometimes that pushback can go into very scary places. I mean, we think of the, you know, the so-called Danish cartoons controversy a few years ago when that uh, newspaper, that magazine in Denmark printed those, those uh, cartoons of Muhammad and it resulted in, in people getting murdered. Um, and so we misunderstand Muhammad. And then thirdly and finally, Christians sometimes misunderstand politics. Um, because in Christianity we have generally uh, disconnected politics and uh, and religion. I know sometimes uh, in both our countries, it's not just Americans who are, you know, this happens to. We can do the same here. If you're a Christian and love politics, you can make the mistake of connecting the two. But actually, I think you know we, we forget that Jesus said, "My kingdom is not of this world," and Christians are not called to set up a theocracy. Um, Islam has a much more complicated relationship. Muslims don't have any concept of church and state being separated. It's all one category. You know, Muhammad was a, was a warlord. He was a politician. He was their prophet. Um, and so Muslims don't separate these things. And that can cause no manner of, all manner of confusion. You know, Christians can be thinking we're having a lovely conversation about faith with our Muslim friends. And then suddenly the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been dragged into the conversation. And you wonder where did that, where did that come from? It's because in your Muslim friend's mind, there is no difference. Um, Whereas as Christians, we're quite used to perhaps putting our, you know, arguments about Republican versus Democrat, hopefully to one side and having a conversation. Muslims will not do that. And that can cause confusion too. So the three big areas of confusion, there's the Islam and violence, uh, the place of Muhammad, and uh, the role of politics in Islam. Those are three areas where Christians get very confused. Wow. So, Andy, um, that's really interesting. So what, um, going back to your first point, Yes. Um, about Islam and violence. What, mm -hmm. I guess, um, you, ha you had said, and I, I don't know if I thought about it like this, that for a lot of Muslims, um, they're concerned too for that extremist because they're subject to, um, to, the, to the violent end of the spectrum from, you know, other, um, other I guess, uh, ex extremist groups. Um, can you talk to me? What, um, mm -hmm. I guess, what is their, their feeling like um, when they're talking to Christians? Um, does, does uh, I mean, is that something they're, they're, they're thinking about, that this is how Christians are viewing us? Like, what is that for them? Uh, is, is that, I guess, is that a barrier for Christians um, reaching out to them that they have to overcome or, or that yeah. we have to clarify? 
well, there's a whole range of things going on there. I think for for more for more thoughtful, more moderate Muslims, of whom there are many, many, many who are, who live here in the West, um, I think they're deeply concerned that uh, the actions of extremism cast Islam in a bad light. And this, by short, I would say to Christians, for sure, there's a discussion around violence in Islam. We need to talk honestly about Islam's origins, about Muhammad, and so forth. But just for a moment, think about your neighbour person your colleague the person you're trying to talk to and how they are feeling that you know this is skewing your perception of the religion that they love um and it can be very very difficult for many muslims some muslims are aware of the issues uh, in early islam and uh, deeply concerned uh, by them and don't quite know what to do with them um other muslims aren't and that becomes a problem because sometimes in conversations with Muslims, they can become aware of something uh, they were unaware of. And that can cause no manner of all manner of problems. And then, as I say, some Muslims are actually genuinely terrified of extremism. You know, sometimes be aware that, you know, if you're talking to a Muslim who is from, say, one of the minority sects in Islam, mm. you know, Islam has had a lot of kind of, you know, intra-Islamic violence over the years. So Shiites, who are a minority group uh, in Islam, they're a majority in Iran, but in the rest of the world, the Muslim world, they're, they're generally a minority. Um, things have been quite tough for them. And then you take, uh, you know, some of the sort of more fringe sects of Islam, and there's often been persecution. Um, so I've, you know, I've come across Muslims who the reason they've moved to the West is to get away from the nutters, as they put it in the in the Middle East. I remember, you know, um, some kind of years ago when I lived in, in Canada, I was in Toronto from 2010 to 2016. I was getting a taxi to the airport on one occasion, got chatting to the, the Uber driver. And I sort of asked, you know, where he was from uh, and how long he lived in Toronto. So I'm, you know, been here about three, four years from Pakistan originally. I said, oh, you know, wonderful Pakistan. You know, why, you know, what, uh, are you a Muslim? And he said, yeah, yeah, I am. I said, so why did you just have interest? Why did you come to Toronto? What was the draw? Was it family? Was it work? And he said, oh, you know, well, we're not considered by other Pakistanis to be very good Muslims. I said, are you by any chance uh, an Ahmadiyya Muslim? He went, oh, you've heard of us. I went, of course I've heard of you. Your world centre is based in my own country in the UK. I've met thousands of you. And I said, I, I completely understand the, the persecution that you've had because they're on a slightly fringe sect in islam oh then the way you know the whole conversation just lit up because you know it was a christian who'd heard of him and then we had a great conversation on the ride to the airport and stuff but there was a yeah case in point he and his family had come to canada because they would have you know their lives were at risk uh from where they'd come in in pakistan so it's a it's a more complex issue so i always say to christians you know yeah we need to talk about the with all the honesty about the issues in islam but don't assume that the individual muslim you're speaking to is a violent extremist even if you passionately believe as a christian that islam has all these problems with violence i think it does um but you know in, in evangelism and apologetics it's absolutely crucial that we deal with the individual uh not see them as a sort of cipher who represent the, the bigger well, same goes for atheism right i mean to go you know most atheists you meet are not richard dawkins nut jobs so don't assume that they're they're, they're mad crazy new atheists they might be perfectly moderate Kind of lovely people who actually go go for a beer and a pizza with and you'll have potentially have a great conversation about faith same goes for muslims but without the beer by the way don't try to be a, be a muslim <laughs> friend try and try coke and a pizza <laughs> that's funny um that's that's really good um and that, that's something for as as american christians that's something for us to be conscious of and aware of you know and not to to kind of i guess get that that vi i mean that is an important piece to kind of to pin down and kind of figure out but at the same time when we're having a conversation we need to set that aside for a moment so we can 
um, speak human human and have a conversation, a uh, real life conversation um, involving Jesus and life and, and all of that to, to kind of not, not think yeah. of the most extreme um, kind of person. So, so those are some, I guess, misconceptions that um, um, Christians have about Muslims. What about the, the other way around? What are some misconceptions that Muslims yeah. have about Christianity? Well, it's interesting because when I did this event at Edinburgh University, I was very sneaky. I confess, Skylar, because I, I did the I started with these three misconceptions that Christians have of Muslims, and it was great because all the Muslims in the audience were nodding and and really appreciative as I as I talked about this honestly. And then, of course, I turned it around and went, "Well, now we have to talk about you know the misconceptions the other way." I said, "Misconception number one." I said, "There's a there's a misconception." Um, about the Bible. Many Muslims believe the Bible has been corrupted, uh, even though the Quran doesn't say this. The Quran speaks very highly uh, about the Bible. Muhammad spoke very highly about the Bible. But I talked about how the fact in early Islam, this uh, this belief that the Bible has been corrupted develops because early Islamic theologians um, perceive there to be some contradictions between the Bible and the Quran. And, and obviously they could not consider the idea that the Quran had been corrupted. Um, and so they decided the Bible had been but I just explored and teased out the problems there I said of course the problem there theologically is that you're saying God's word uh, can be changed by human beings and that makes God look pathetic and I don't think that's actually what the Quran says and I don't think it's theologically sound either so we dealt with that one um, and then always I also talked about the fact that um, you know yes the Quran the Bible has some you know some textual variants in its manuscript tradition but that doesn't mean it's unreliable I said inter interestingly so is the Quran and I showed a few manuscript pictures of early Quran manuscripts where scribes have made changes. Gosh, you could hear the ripples go around the room at that one. Um, <laughs> then I talked about uh, many Muslims misunderstand Jesus. They believe that, that Christians have taken, you know, a man, just a prophet, and we have elevated him to deity. They have never actually stopped and read what Jesus said about himself, the claims that he made. And I use that as an opportunity to look at some of those claims and why the disciples, why the first Christians came to the conclusion that he, this was more than a man. Uh, and then lastly, I said a lot of Muslims misunderstand, uh, you know, what conversion kind of means, because in Islam, it's really sort of, it's just really belief. It's saying, I believe there is one God and Muhammad is a prophet and you kind of stick your hand up and obey the law and so forth. But in, for Christians, it's actually a whole life transforming experience when you put your trust in Jesus and uh, know that a real experience of being forgiven and then God filling you with his spirit and beginning that process of, of building you into a new creation. And I contrasted the fact that this offer of new creation, you know, uh, that we are new creations, the New Testament says, versus the Quran, there is no new creation, there is no change. Um, the best that Islam has to offer is here are some better laws, try following these ones. Whereas Christianity says, actually, you can't follow the law, it's just not possible, um, because your very nature is corrupt. So here, have a whole new nature. And... Um, and so, yeah, it was it was a bit cheeky because I thought I got to the end and basically I I talked about fairly harmless misconceptions on the Christian side, but used on the Muslim side to go right into the into the gospel. And then we had this Q and A afterwards, and it was just phenomenal because we had about an hour of questions and uh, quite a lot of questions around the Trinity. And uh, I think one of the most exciting things for me was the head of the Islamic Society coming up afterwards and saying, "He said that's the first time I've heard a Christian explain why you believe what you believe about Jesus and the Trinity in a way that makes sense." Wow. So I can, I, can I, now, I now understand why you believe it. <laughs> I think I said, so, so do you believe it? He went, no, I don't believe it, but I can understand why you would. Um, so that was, that I was pleased with, because I think a lot of Muslims have been taught the Christian, you know, the Trinity is ridiculous. The Bible's being corrupted. You know, Jesus was just a prophet. They've never investigated those things. 
And so as Christians, I think it's important we take the opportunity to, to listen, to ask good questions, find out what they believe, don't, don't stereotype or caricature them, but also then make sure we say, hey, this is why we believe what we believe. And as First Peter 3 verse 15 says, you know, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Mm. Andy, um, you, you said that um, you explained the Trinity in a way that made sense to a Muslim. I'm afraid there's a lot of Christians that the Trinity doesn't make sense to them. Can you, like, um, I think this will be helpful, um, but can you unpack, can you un unravel um, this mystery of the Trinity? Um, and yeah. it, the reason I ask that is because I think, you know, for us to be able to present it, we have to have a solid base. And so, yes. <laughs> could you clarify? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, I, I, I like the challenge of doing that in, in a couple of minutes without committing too many heresies. Um, <laughs> well, the first thing is, I think I always say, look, when we're talking about the Trinity, to, particularly to Muslims, um, it's worth breaking the question into two parts rather than sort of going all over the place. I like to come in by, first of all, thinking about the question, you know, is it possible? Is the Trinity possible? Is it possible that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit? And then secondly, how might we know if that's true? Because Muslims sometimes conflate those two things together. So to start with the first one, I want to show them there's no contradiction between, between saying we believe in one God, but that God is a God who is three persons. And one of the analogies I've used over the years, and it's not unique to me, I mean, others have used it, is say, look, you know, as human beings, we know there is a difference between, uh, between what something is and who something is. Um, in fact, it's interesting. Human beings have have who-ness, whereas other things only have what-ness. So on my on my desk here, I have a I have a rock, and you know this rock is a what. If you say if I said what is this, you'd say it's a rock. If I said who is this, you'd go Andy, you, you, you're bonkers. It's obviously late in the day. Your brain's not functioning. There's no who here, only what. On the other hand, you know if I if I I was walking down the street, I was in your side of the state, the states. When you and I were going out for a coffee, and someone walked up to us and pointed at you and said, uh, you know, what is this? You'd feel a bit offended, right? Because there's, there's a who-ness to you. Yes, you are a human being, but you are, you are a who as well as a what. Now, human beings are one what and one who. You know, in terms of what you are, you're a collection of atoms and particles. We could describe you in terms of biological processes and so forth, but you're also a who, you're, you're Skylar. So you are one what and one who, but those two things are not the same. Um, God, on the other hand, according to the, the Bible, He's one what, he is God, but he's three who's. Mm. Christians were saying he's one what and three what's, or one who and three who's, that would be a problem. But that's not what the doctrine of the Trinity says. The, the Trinity says we have a, a God who is one what and three who's. And I often say to Muslims, can you show me where the contradiction there is? Because I don't think there is one. And I begin by teasing that out. And my goal is to get a Muslim to the state where they can say, okay, all right, I sort of see that could be possible, particularly when you press them on the surely God can do whatever he wants to do. Um, you know, God is unlimited in, in power. So once you start saying God can't do something, then there's a bit of an issue. Then the next question is to go, well, how do we know? How might we know what God is like and whether God is this way? And that's great because it gets you right to Jesus. And what the way the framework I normally take there, Skylar, is to say, well, okay, if we look at the early church, every Christian group that we know of worshipped Jesus. If we look at the New Testament, the worship of Jesus is all over the New Testament. Book of Revelation, you know, he's uh, he's portrayed as a lamb on the very throne of God. Um, in the, across the New Testament, Christians uh, pray to Jesus. They call upon the name of Jesus in the way they would have called upon the name of the Lord in the Old Testament. They baptize in the name of Jesus. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Um, this goes on and on and on. And so they worship Jesus 
in a way that doesn't really make sense unless he's more than a man. Because in Judaism, um, and most of us Christians were Jewish, of course, worship was what differentiated God from not God. You worship God, yeah. you didn't worship anything else. So now we just raise the question, why did the first Christians do that? And I often say to Muslims, you've got two choices here. You either have to conclude Jesus was the worst religious teacher ever. He was useless. He was utterly, utterly useless because he didn't want to be worshipped, but he didn't manage to convey that to his disciples. Or you're forced to conclude maybe he said some things that led the first Christians, who were a pretty smart bunch, to figure out he was worthy of worship. And then you can just dive into various examples in the Gospels. I like to start just in Mark's Gospel. I often start with the, with the, with the paralytic who's lowered through the roof. And yeah. Jesus forgives his sins. And the Jewish leaders figure that one out because they're like, who the heck does he think he is forgiving sins? And Jesus plays with them. I love that story because Jesus just with a twinkle in his eye goes, I'll tell you what, what's easier, forgiving sins or healing? I'll tell you what, show you I can do the first one. I'll do the second one. Ta-da! And uh, the, the Pharisees just tear their hair out. Next chapter, Jesus is, uh, it says, announces them he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath is divine time. It was, the, it was the time that God set up at the beginning of creation. And as one New Testament commentator put, uh, once remarked, you know, Jesus saying I'm the Lord of Sabbath, the Sabbath is tantamount to saying I'm the Lord of space and time. Mm. And again, the Pharisees go insane. Yeah. And we see this again and again through the Gospels that Jesus makes these claims and the Jewish leaders know full well what's going on, culminating in his favorite title for himself, Son of Man, just taken right out of Daniel. And then in his trial before the high priest, when the high priest says, are you the, are you the son of the most high? Are you the son of God? Rather than just go, uh, no which is what a sane person would do if it had all gone badly wrong and you'd be misunderstood. Jesus literally quotes Daniel chapter 7 at the high priest. You know, you will see the, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and the high priest tears his robes and sends Jesus off to crucify him. And that's the kicker, because I say to Muslims, if he'd been crucified as a blasphemer, which is what he was crucified as, if he'd stayed dead, we'd have had a dead Jewish blasphemer. And Jesus would have been a strange, quirky uh, you know, manipulator, lunatic, whatever, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead three days later, vindicating every claim he'd made. And the first Christians went, this is why we're going to worship him. And so Jesus gives us then this great insight into the very nature of God, because at that point, you've got plurality in the, in the persons of God. And the New Testament says time and time again, if you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. So theoretically, the Trinity is possible. Practically, we see it in Jesus and then lastly, I sort of tie a little bow on the top by saying to Muslims, if you don't have a God who is triune, you end up with some bizarre problems. You know, the Quran does in about one place or a couple of places does refer to God being, you know, a God of love. Um, it's not a major Quranic theme, but it is there. Um, problem with that, of course, is, you know, love requires plurality. Uh, love requires a person, a subject, an object. And so if Allah is a God who is a, a God of love, if, God, if Allah is going to exhibit any of those things, and he isn't a God who's triune, that means Allah first has to create something to, in order to love it. And that means God in Islam is dependent on creation in Christianity because of the Trinity. God didn't require anything to create. God could be love because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit love one another before creation. So we have a God who is actually generally, genuinely self-subsistent, self-consistent in Christianity. In Islam, we have a God who gets, it gets very, very messy and you end up with a God who's dependent on creation. So those are some of the things I would play around. There's a lot in there I totally appreciate. Uh, I've covered a lot of ground. Um, so, you know, listeners can play this back at half speed 
and it'll hopefully make some sense. <laughs> uh, no, that's uh, Andy. That is super rich and very helpful. I mean, especially the who and the what analogy at the beginning. Um, I had I had not thought about it um, in that way. I you know I've heard other analogies with ice, water, um, gas, uh, the eggshell, and you know all of them have their pitfalls. Um, but that's really good to to put it that way. And yeah. it's also what nice. I would say just about very point. I think this is huge. Hugely important, Skylar, is um, is I would say be very wary of analogies. I think Christians we get ourselves in trouble uh, with analogies, and uh, you know things like the ice water steam one. I mean, you, if you're not careful, you end up sort of you know in all kinds of classic heresies and saying that you know God is just playing a game and pretending to be these three things. Um, but also, Muslims look askance at them, and I would say as soon as you can, you want to get Muslims into the Bible and into what the text says rather than play with analogies. So that's why I, I framed it that way. Gently introduce the idea, look, it could be possible, right? If we can just agree it could be possible, now let's you know, put analogies aside and go see what's going on. And if Jesus claims stand up, then that's living proof that yeah. this, is who, this is who God is um, kind of thing. So yeah, I, I'm always very, very wary of analogies. In fact, there's a wonderful video for people who haven't found this. If you, if you Google uh, St. Patrick's bad analogies, there's a wonderful video by a group of guys called Lutheran Satire, which is a lot of fun uh, exploring the mess that Christians get into uh, when you mess around with, uh, with analogies uh, kind of thing. And, you know, they're, they're making the same point, really. So um, I'll try and put that into the chat and then you can share it with your, uh, your, your listeners uh, later, um, Skylar. Absolutely. I will. I would love that. Um, so, okay, uh, clearly the Trinity and um, Allah uh, are, are different. <laughs> What yes. um, is there? Uh, is there any sense of common ground, or does do um, Islam uh, and Christianity have any anything in common? Well, we've got a few things um, in common. Um, I mean, certainly, I was going to say, certainly, we both believe in God. We all believe. We both believe in Scripture. We both believe in prophets and sin and heaven and hell. So a lot of the terminology is the same. But I think one of the things that often confuses people uh, when we press a little bit deeper, and uh, you know, I think it's what I found a struggle in my early years of engaging Muslims and took a while to figure out, is that Islam uses the same words as we use, um, but means very different things by them. And we can get we can get uh, we can get deceived by the fact that because Muslims talk about God, it's the same God, or because Muslims talk about heaven it means the same thing and i always say to christians and to muslims actually that when you're talking and having inter-religious conversations never assume when you hear a word that it means the same thing use an opportunity if you're muslim so you know ask a muslim friend say you, know, you believe in god right and they say yes you know great follow-up question talk to me about the kind of gods you believe in i'd love to know what you believe about god and actually uh, over the years and again it's not original to me i've kind of modified this from from, from others, I think four great questions that you can use, you know, whether talking to a Muslim friend or a Hindu friend, Buddhist friend or an atheist friend, four really great questions for helping sort of categorize what people believe. You can ask your friend the question, you know, do you believe there's a God and what is God like? You can ask the question, what do you think a human being is? Tell me what human beings are. What does it mean to be human? And then you can ask two further questions. What, uh, what do you think is wrong with the world? What's gone wrong with the world? And then what's the solution? So is there a God and what is he like? Uh, what, is, what are human beings? What's gone wrong with the world? And what's the solution? And those four questions can lead to a fascinating conversation, whoever you're talking to. And of course, as you look at those, 
you're probably being able to see as a Christian, we've got so much to say in each of those categories. Yeah. So here's, um, here's the, the, uh, the thousand dollar question, Andy, um, do Christians and oh, yeah. Muslims worship the same God? Well, the funny thing is, um, having just, I've just written a book on that and it's coming out with IVP in the spring. So I'm tempted to say I, I contractually, I can't tell you because they want me to sell the book. Um, but no, let's have a little chat around that one. Yeah. Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Do you know, in a nutshell, Skylar, what I'd say is the answer to that, to have some fun with you, is both yes and no. It's mainly no, but with a little bit of yes. Let's unpack what I mean. When, coming back to those four worldview questions I just described, when someone says they believe in God, we need to ask some questions. Because simply because they believe in God doesn't necessarily mean they believe in the same God. And we can see this by an analogy. You know, if we chatted a bit, you know, after, you know, before the show or after the show, and we discover that we, we both believe there is one president of the USA, and you say that you believe the president of the USA is, is Donald Trump. And I say, I thought I believe the president of the USA is Donald Duck. We could have, we both believe in one president. Uh, we both believe that president's first name is Donald, but we clearly don't believe in the same president. We could debate which would be the most effective and have a lovely political discussion, but we don't believe in the same identity of the same person. Um, and the same could be true of God. I think it's possible to believe in God, but believe quite different things about who that God is. And so with Muslims, we need to press into this. And here's the thing, when you open up the Quran and compare the Quran to the Bible, and you look at the Bible's description of the characteristics and nature of God, I think the Quran teaches something very different. And in the book, in a nutshell, I, I, I show how I think that at least five of the key attributes of God in the Bible, our God is relational. Um, that's in, inherent to the, to the nature of God. In the Bible, he walks and talks in the garden without with Adam and Eve. He appears at the burning bush, talks to Moses, and he appears in theophanies throughout the Old Testament. Um, he's there walking and talking in the new heavens and the new earth, the book of Revelation, and of course, in the person of Jesus, steps yeah. into history. He's a God who's relational. He's a God who can be known. Time and time again, the Bible, uh, you know, instructs and commands us not just to know about God, but to know Him. He's a God who is holy. Uh, who is not just a God who's concerned with sending us commands and instructions. His very nature is righteousness and, and goodness and truth. And, uh, and, and uh, humans are expected to live in, you know, a, a, in sort of a alignment with that. And in fact, God is so holy, we can't, you know, sinful human beings can't even come to his presence. Mm -hmm. And that becomes very important when we talk about what the Bible has to say about, about, about sin and salvation. God is a God of love uh, in the Bible um in the first in the letter of first john you know we read that wonderful little saying in chapter 4 verse 16 that god is love and then of course god is also god who has suffered um he hasn't just sat up there impassively in heaven he stepped into history in the person of jesus or in the old testament you see the same theme look at the book of hosea uh which really i think you know taps into how much god's heart is moved and grieved by what humans have done and, and how we're alienated from him and so forth. So God is relational, knowable, love, uh, holy, and has suffered. Turn to the Quran and the Quran either denies or, uh, or just ignores I, all of those categories. It, those are not categories that really compute uh, for the God of the Quran. So you end up really concluding, if you look at the Quran, it's not the same God. So that's the no part of the question. And it's a pretty big no. Um, here's the thing though. Can you come across, do you meet individual Muslims who are, searching for seeking for you know yearning after the god of the bible without even knowing it there i think the answer is yes hmm. and the biblical model for that would be of course act 17 where paul is in acts in, in athens if you remember does his little you know walks around the city doing the tourist tour looking at all the temples and idols and everything 
buys a few postcards and you know then he comes across this statue to the altar to the unknown god and then you know makes a sort of note of that and then when he's later talking to all the philosophers at the Areopagus um, he uses that as a bridging point you know does, does this wonderful sermon based upon hey I saw this altar to the unknown god let me tell you who that is which is amazing because Paul's a first century Jew you'd expect him to rail against the foolishness of idolatry but he turns it into a preaching point with Muslims, the equivalent is when I meet Muslims who tell me they believe in a God of love, tempting is, is, is to say, no, you don't. That's not the Quran. I think it's much more helpful to say, I agree with you. You're 100 percent right. God is a God of love. But I don't think the God you're describing to me is the God of the Quran. I think you're describing it to the God of the Bible. So come on home. You know, you've, you've, you've realized that God is a God of love. He absolutely is. And Jesus died for Muslims as well as atheists and everybody else. So, you know, why don't you come home to the God of the Bible? And so that's the yes part. I think there are some Muslims who are who are very close. Frankly, there are there are others who are far away. Um, but the Quran, uh, it's not the same God. Mm. So, what do you find, Andy? What do you find most effective um, as as a as a Christian having a conversation with a Muslim? I, I maybe I should rephrase that. What do you find most effective with a Christian sharing Jesus with a Muslim? Like, what is are, are some genuine connection points mm. that? that build bridges rather than just kind of explode the, yeah. the relationship. Yeah. Well, let me give a, you know, sort of two or three um, suggestions here, Scarlett. The first thing I think in terms of building kind of relationships is to build relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes as Christians, we've forgotten how to do that. And of course with Muslims who, you know, may have a slight inbuilt distrust of Christians, um, not really know what we believe or, you know, or they believe that we hate them because they think we're all, they're all violent terrorists or all those things. There's so many misconceptions going on. The best thing you can do if you've got a Muslim friend, a Muslim neighbor, Muslim colleague, if you're a student listening to this, you've got a fellow kind of student on your courses, reach out and, and, and build a friendship, invite your neighbor uh, around for a meal or, you know, if you can't do that yet, a socially distanced cup of coffee, um, find ways to find ways to reach out and connect is first thing. And then take an interest in them. Start by, saying, look, I'm, I'm a Christian. I understand you're a Muslim. I don't know much about Islam. Tell me what you believe and do lots of question asking. It will build relationships and you don't compromise the gospel by listening and asking questions. You're not affirming. You're just saying, well, that's really interesting. Tell me about this and about this. And, and there's a very good chance that's the point at which they'll turn to you and say, well, what do you believe? And if they don't, then you can always introduce that at some point and say, this is really interesting. As Christians, we believe something different. So start with relationship and the power of hospitality. Um, Another great opportunity, I think, is to find the connecting points around things like Jesus. So Jesus turns up in the Quran, for example. I mentioned that, I think, earlier, about 90 verses in the Quran about Jesus. Um, And that's a great starting point. You know, you could say, ask your Muslim friend. I understand Jesus is in, in the Quran. What does the Quran say about him? And again, ask questions. And there's a lot the Quran says that you, as Christians, would disagree with. That's okay. Just start there. And then when the time is right... Um, you know, you can turn around to your Muslim friend and say, well, that's interesting because, you know, I believe something different for, you know, these reasons. In fact, a great little book to help you on that, a friend of mine, an Australian friend, but no one's perfect. We, God loves Australians. Um, <laughs> called Richard Schumacher has written this wonderful little book called Jesus Through Muslim Eyes. And it's a really good survey of what the Quran says about Jesus. And then, you know, a comparison with the Gospels and lots of then bridging points off into evangelism. And so it's published by uh, by SPCK, available wherever books are sold. So, so Jesus Through Muslim Eyes by Richard Schumach. That will give you lots of ideas. And then thirdly, the other thing that I've seen work well over the years is look for opportunities as you get to know Muslims in your neighborhood, in your workplace, at your school or college or wherever. 
look for opportunities maybe to um, certainly be praying for them, but then be looking for opportunities to do what um, some have called uh, Quran and Bible Quran and Bible studies. So the way you do that with your Muslim friend is you say something like, you know, once you've got to know them a little bit, you can say, hey, why don't we meet for, for coffee next week? And would you, why don't you, would you be willing to bring, you know, your two or three favorite Quran verses and share them? I'd love to know, you know, what those are and why they mean, what they mean to you. And then I'll bring my two or three favorite Bible verses and I'll, and I'll share those. It'd be really interesting to hear from each other. And uh, most Muslims have never heard the Bible, never read the Bible. And so it's an incredible opportunity. And again, you're not affirming the Quran by listening. You're not going, oh yeah, I agree with that. You're just listening in the same way that I'd have no problem, you know, if, if it was an atheist friend and they love Richard Dawkins to death, I'd say, bring your favorite passage of the God delusion and we can talk about it. Um, and it also then makes the Muslim feel safer because they're sharing from the Quran and then you can talk about the Bible. And uh, obviously pick your Bible passage well. Don't go for Ecclesiastes or Lamentations perhaps on, <laughs> on this occasion. Um, Jesus is the best place to go. I often sort of say a great starting point is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the themes of justice in there will resonate with a Muslim and it feels relatively kind of safe uh, to them. But then you can move into more, you know, sort of edgy stuff. I think um, you know, the parable of, the, of the, the so-called parable of the prodigal son, which is wrongly named, I think it should be the parable of the man with two sons. Mm. And it's interesting because the older son in that story, you know, looks uh, a little bit like a Muslim, actually, the way he behaves. He's a law keeper and Jesus has a few things to say kind of there and that's a great story to dig into so to dig into the stories of jesus and most muslims have never read a story of jesus they've never read a parable and to go you will probably end up talking far more about the bible than you do about the about the quran so hospitality uh prayer jesus as a connector and then quran and bible studies for want of a better word those are great places uh, to start andy this has been so helpful and that is um, that is gold. That is fantastic uh, insight and um, uh, I guess points of connection, relationship, um, reaching out. Um, man, this is that was good, uh, Andy. I want to I want to say thank you. Is there any last things that you wanna you wanna add to this conversation before we kind of wrap up? No, I think just really to to underline Scott, that importance of reaching out. You know, it's interesting. You know, as an evangelist and apologist, someone who lives the, loves the life of the mind. Um, but nevertheless, I think one of the one of the neglected evangelistic um, tools that we have as Christians is hospitality. We've forgotten the power of, you know, that works for Muslims, works with our secular friends. So let's rediscover the power of reaching out, being proactive, mm. going to other people's space, inviting friends for meals, for coffees, whatever, because that's such a great leveler. And I think it's no accident that Jesus in the gospel his gospels was known as someone who ate and dined with tax collectors and sinners yeah. and so forth. You know, we've got a model there. So rather than sort of just thinking propositionally, you know, what are the, what are the kind of silver bullet sound bites I can throw into conversations like an apologetics Kung Fu expert. That's two metaphors jammed together. Um, you know, what about thinking about, okay, who are the people I can befriend, reach out to open my home to, and within those contexts use you know, all the other evangelistic and apologetic tools that are available to us. So the power of hospitality. And I think it gets to the heart of the gospel, because of course that's what Jesus has God has shown us in Jesus. He showed us hospitality. He could have slammed the door in our face. He hasn't, like the father at the end of the the power of the two sons, you know, in Luke fifteen, the father's flung the door wide open, the party has begun, and he's out there saying to the older son, Come on, come on in. Mm. And that's what God says to us. And I think we model that yeah. uh, and we use that as an evangelistic tool. So the power of hospitality would be the thought I'd leave people with. You know, and you even think uh, when, I mean, when you when you are tapping into that characteristic of, about God, about God's love, you know, um, I mean, the gospel, right? John three sixteen. you know, that 
how much God loved us, there's something within us that strikes a chord that it's not only do we feel in, inside of us, man, this, this is somehow true, but we want it to be true. And when you, when you, when you hit that, that chord in the human heart, you know, it just, it, it feels like it begins a journey for somebody when that, when, when, it, and when it hits you in the heart. Um, and, um, oh, I, I was going to say something else, but, oh, COVID, you know, you think about everything with going on with COVID. Um, what a perfect oppor- opportune time to show hospitality to people, you know, with, with the removal Definitely. of relationships. So, yeah, I think so. I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's a whole other conversation there. I think the spiritual questions that, that COVID has raised as a lot of the old securities have been swept away, you know, people for a long time have been living like all that matters is, you know, is work and health and all the other things. And suddenly along has come COVID and all of those old certainties have been knocked sideways. And I think a lot of people are, are asking searching questions. I think lots of people have been, you know, forced to think about their mortality for the first yeah. time. And so what an opportunity and again, for us to show, you know, as Christians, why we are people of hope, uh, even in a world of uncertainty. So, yeah, always look for the conversational opportunity, whether it's our Muslim friends or our secular friends. And again, look for ways to do it in their space. If we can, you know, if we can go to the coffee shop, if we can, you know, take a colleague out for, you know, to, to, to buy lunch in the work cafeteria or something. If we can, you know, stick our head across the neighbor's fence and talk to them when they're on their in their space, they feel safer, they feel more secure. Uh, but we don't, you know, we don't hold back on the gospel. Um, awesome. And I say, Jesus is the great model. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't sit in the temple and wait for people to come to him. He goes where they are. And uh, Paul and the first Christians did the same. So let's be people who go out uh, as Jesus commanded us to in Matthew 28 and do that with love and compassion and honesty and truth. And, uh, and then just pray and leave it to the Lord and see how he uses us. Andy, thanks so much. Um, this has been rich. This has been very helpful. Um, and you are a, a, a blessing to us here in the States um, with your writing, your lecturing. And so um, thanks so much, man, for, for your time. Thank you for your investment in your academic studies. So somebody like me um, can um, pull just a little bit of your insights and apply it to um, our contact. So, Andy, um, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time. You are very welcome. Been an absolute privilege, Skylar. Thanks for uh, thanks for the invitation. Where, where do you even begin? I mean, that was insightful. I mean, so insightful. I mean, Islam, Christianity, the Trinity, Bible, evangelism. I mean, we there was so much crammed into that one conversation. I'm sure that some of you, you do want to go back and listen to that episode at a much slower pace to catch everything that he said. For me, one of the biggest takeaways after this conversation, if if I could even narrow it down to one thing, was just the power of hospitality. I mean, we, we what we tend to do is we tend to overthink our answers and then under-deliver our humanity. And yet, one of the greatest tools at our disposal as humans is not a book on ourselves. It is ourselves. You being a friend is one of the greatest and most powerful witnesses you have to others about Jesus. I've linked several of the resources that he mentioned uh, in our interview in the show notes, so be sure if you want to go back and, and look at some of those things and go further in these conversations, you can you can do so there. I hope that this conversation has helped you in your life so that you can make a greater impact in your life. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next time.